Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To the Honourable, the Speaker and members of the House of Representatives in Parliament Assembly. Petition of the undersigned women of the age of 21 years and upwards, resident in the colony. That large numbers of women in the colony have for several years petitioned Parliament to extend the franchise to. The justice of the claim and the expediency of granting it was, during the last session of Parliament, affirmed by both houses. That if such provision is not made before the next general election, your petitioners will, for several years, be denied the enjoyment of what has been admitted by Parliament to be a just right. Denied the enjoyment of what has been admitted by Parliament to be a just right and will suffer a grievous wrong. To adopt such measures as will enable women to record their votes for members of the House of Representatives at the ensuing general election. The prayer at the top of the 1893 petition did its job, which meant the door knocking, the long meetings and planning, the covert printing of sheets for the petition, the handwritten letters mailed out, the women who made their way around the country. All of it was worth it. Thank you. Women get the vote? Good heavens. That's right. The women of New Zealand were granted the right to vote, and on the day, 19 September, 125 years ago, Kate Shepherd received a telegram from Premier Sir Richard Seddon confirming that the bill had been passed into law. In it, he wrote... I trust now that all doubts as to the sincerity of the government in this very important matter has been been effectually removed. Etc. Hello, I'm Sonia Sly, and this is Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. In the previous episodes, we've unravelled the petition and looked at rural life. We've dipped our toes into politics. And in this episode, I want to take a look at issues like property rights for women, domestic violence, and even the right to ride a bicycle. Because while some things were embedded in law, there were social rules and codes that affected the lives of women, just like they do today. And my first question is a big one. I asked Professor Charlotte MacDonald, who you've heard through the series, how winning the vote really changed things for women. It changed because then they could vote, they had a political voice, they could influence the political debate and legislation. uh, and, And that was absolutely important. It changed very importantly in the sense that it recognised 
the justice of equal political participation. One of the reasons women wanted the vote was to change legislation around alcohol, where it could be sold and how and when it might be consumed. And of course, there were businesses who lobbied politicians and feared that their livelihoods would be damaged. They thought women would vote, they would go out of business. They didn't, in fact, but there were people who simply opposed it on principle. They didn't think women were sufficiently cognate individuals, you know, that they were somehow lesser beings who couldn't form judgments of their own. I think there were probably those who thought that the natural order of things was for husbands to command their wives, for fathers to, you know, tell their daughters what to do, um, and that, you know, women should keep in their place, and their place was not to have their own views not to have their own views. Right. Well, either way, women were always going to have their views and, given the chance, have a say too. There was also something else that MPs feared, but let's just say it was all in their imaginations. Here's historian Barbara Brooks, Professor of History at Otago University. You know, they felt that the sort of sexual element would be introduced to Parliament and distract from the business of Parliament. They were using every excuse under the sun, as well as putting the onus on women. Even, you know, in the 1970s, women might be asked to step out of cases to do with obscene phone calls because it wasn't appropriate for women to hear things like that. In the 60s, women were asked to absent themselves from lectures on rape in law school. And jury service was not compulsory for women until you could be excused on the grounds of your sex. There were so many spheres of life where the doors had been closed to women, either to protect their so-called genteel natures or where they might be exposed to bad language. And polling booths were included. They were renowned for being rowdy and considered inappropriate places for women. But you didn't hesitate, Mrs Perriman, to go to the polling booth. Uh, Well, it was a bit unpleasant going among a lot of strange men. This is Mrs Nellie Perryman, who knows firsthand. She was the editor of the WCTU newsletter, The White Ribbon. But the conditions at Big Tony, compared with some other places, were very decent. And once the women had succeeded in getting the vote, all candidates were anxious to have their support. Exactly. Here's Victoria University history professor Kate Hunter, who says the debate around women's vote was also tied up in a woman's lack of ownership of herself, which is unfathomable today. Really, the law just made a married woman a non-person. She was a possession. And that was really obvious to people once the slavery debate had been won. Activism is linked. We see that going on into the 20th century. Second wave feminism is really strongly linked to the anti-Vietnam movement and the black civil rights movement. That political ferment is deeply linked in the early 19th century. By the 1850s, there are men standing up in Parliament saying, well, you know, we have all these reasons for not giving women the vote, but really, what are those reasons? It cannot be questioned at all that women physically and to a large extent, mentally, are not fit to be recipients of a voting power equal to men. (laughs) It was those kinds of attitudes that stood in the way of women, 
When you have no rights, you have no power. And those in society who hold the power are more than happy to strip away your humanity. Well, if women are naturally inferior and they wouldn't be able to make a good decision and they wouldn't understand the process anyway, well, why don't we just give them the vote? They won't use it. Hmm. So, moving along. Because gaining the vote was one thing, and women back then had plenty of battles on their hands. Some of them couldn't be changed by law, especially when it came to what women could wear. Because what strikes me is just how heavy it looks. Very, it's, well, it's, it feels heavy too. It is heavy. It looks like a very substantial, like from a distance, like really heavy coat. But imagine that wearing that on your from your waist, and then you've got the riding. I visited to Papa's senior curator, Claire Reno, and we started by looking at a riding habit, a woolen outfit with an overskirt that allowed women to ride horses comfortably. They were quite complicated to make and were fashioned from menswear. They were the, really the first woman's garment that were made by tailors with techniques that were really only applied to men's clothing. The jacket was based on men's clothing. And then they also wore the cravat, or the stock, and also a top hat. So I wonder if like, the earlier tailors then would have been quite open or whether they would have been aghast to the prospect of, oh, a woman's coming here and she wants me to make her something. Yeah, I have not read anything about that, which is quite frustrating. But even, like, you know, quite early on in Samuel Pepys's diaries, he's muttering away about, you know, how you just can't tell the difference anymore except for the skirts coming out from under the jackets. And who was this man? Samuel Pepys is a great English diarist. 17th century? So it did upset people in the beginning that they sort of looked like men. Riding habits were made out of a heavy woolen serge, which was, again, a fabric dissociated with men's wear. Most women's wear was made out of um, finer fabrics, linens and cottons and silk. But at least three decades before women won the franchise, they slowly began incorporating more and more menswear cues into their clothing. Women are beginning to wear tweeds, and again, that was originally a, a male fabric period of suffrage in the 1890s you know you look at a lot of photographs and you'll see women and they'll be in beautiful blouses or eaten little style jackets with those massive sleeves still quite feminine definitely still wearing a skirt but they have a little tie and maybe a little boater and people sort of have associated that women are moving more into a public sphere and then beginning to adapt more male clothing but they always keep the skirt transitioning into trousers was way too much of a threat. And with the riding habits, by the 1850s, women were wearing breeches, riding pants underneath their skirts. Which takes me back to my memories of growing up, being on a bicycle, sometimes without shoes, zooming around the neighbourhood streets in Christchurch where I grew up. There was a sense of freedom, carefree abandon. You see... I was a total tomboy, and I can't imagine getting on a bike with the weight of those heavy skirts. It would have been virtually impossible. Well, back when Kate and her crew were canvassing for the vote, she was also a member of the Atlanta Cycling Club. It became almost like an act of rebellion as they tried to find ways around those weighty dresses and restrictive corsets, which just weren't practical. Yes, they were intent on pushing the bar as far as they could. Kate, let's go. We should try and get there before the boys do. 
she was a founding member, I understand, and she was on the committee. There was quite a few different social reformers involved. Including Alice Byrne and Kate Walker. And Kate Walker and John Wilkinson in 1893 published a pamphlet on notes on dress reform, trying to encourage women to wear um, lighter but warmer underwear, that they need to wear short dresses. But for them, the ultimate dress reform is... Wait for it. ..to be able to wear trousers. I know, right? But it was a big deal because it went against how men saw women and what a proper lady should look like. In 1892, a number of the members, all wearing knickerbocker outfits to go on um, a bike ride, got sort of um, stoned and abuse held at them for wearing such outfits. That's shocking, isn't it? And I wonder if the equivalent today is being bullied on social media or something like that. And there was stuff in the papers later of them saying, well, actually, all the members um, have decided that, you know, they're wearing a particular uniform and that they don't support that radical dress reform. But can you blame them? Cycling while having stones hurled at you isn't exactly my idea of a good time either. Oh, and apparently Alice Byrne made the patterns for the knickerbockers and cycling clothes. And in the pamphlet, you're encouraged to contact her for the patterns, etc. And of course, most women could sew. You know, she's already had some achieved a whole lot with the women's property rights, and now she's trying to get women the vote. And that's 20, 23 years before women actually get the vote. This is Kate Filton. She's a local body politician in Nelson, and her great-great-great-grandmother is Marianne Mueller, New Zealand's very first suffragist, well before Kate Shepherd came onto the scene. Marianne was an active feminist and liked to put her pen to paper. This is what she writes about it. In some 20 pages or so. Why has a woman no power to vote, no right to vote, when she happens to possess or may be a householder, have large possessions and pay her share of taxes towards the public revenue? Were it a question of general knowledge and intelligence as compared... Women are now educated, thinking beings, very different from the females of the day. Patient, unflagging cheerfulness during the years of banishment to some back station in New Zealand, where she toils under the waste smiles around her. And where in that land upon the face of the earth was there ever a finer field for educating the people in the art of government? And she had different parts of it published in all different papers around the country. And this it was written in 1869. You could probably say that Kate adopted some of Marianne's strategic cues. During that time, in the 1850s, she must have started lobbying the New Zealand government to um, introduce women's property rights uh, because she had lost all her right to property back in England. And I think her mother had as well. So when I I found a, a letter she's written to a nephew describing her mother's husband had lost all his money and had married another woman and then had promised to take care of them, but didn't. So she had had experienced a lot of um, women not having financial security, Mm. even though they'd perhaps been born with it. For many women, wanting the vote was related to very real experiences of hardship, as opposed to being a fanciful, throwaway idea. She was really well educated and became reasonably good friends, I think, with quite a lot of eminent New Zealand politicians. Which always helps. But behind every suffragist 
is a story. And Mary Ann's comes with a bit of scandal and, dare I say, romance. So the neighbour was desperately concerned. Her name was Mrs Adams, who by all accounts sounds like a bit of a busybody. I get the feeling she's peeking behind her curtains and watching out the window while doing her needlework. But I'll let you decide. This is in Petticoat Pioneers. I fear I was but a sorry visitor, for the scene made me so low that I could say but very little, and should have made my visit much shorter than it was had it not been that my hostess's flow of conversation and good spirits rather threw a veil over my dullness. But I could not recover for the whole day and lay awake a great part of the night thinking of how that loving heart must have been torn and grieved. This is in Nelson and it's 1851 and quite a scandal happening over whether this woman's mm. divorced, whether her husband's still alive, whether she can get married. Mrs Adams was so concerned for Marianne that she wrote another entry in her diary, but lucky for us, because it gives clues about Marianne and the handsome Dr Mueller. And that's the thing, if nothing was written down about the past, it's pretty hard to track. I've already mentioned a divorced wife residing here who was very attractive and had not only beautiful children of her own but also some equally handsome, the children of Dr Mueller who with his wife and family came out in the same ship as Mrs Griffiths. Mrs Mueller died on the passage and after locating his motherless children with their mother's friend Mrs Griffiths, Dr Mueller returned to England. So Mrs Griffiths, that's Marianne Mueller, before she was married, she steps in, looks after Dr Mueller's children, as well as her own. And I think this is kind of important because families who had a lot of children needed someone to look after the household when the husbands were at work. Apparently he proposed to Marianne and was rejected on the first go. Thankfully we have Mrs Adams' account of the pair and their romance because they did eventually marry. He appeared to me such a handsome and fascinating man that I was only astonished that a woman like Mrs Griffiths could have ever refused him when the act of marriage would have replaced her at once in that situation she had lost by her divorce from her husband, who had been long reported dead. Yes, lives for those women were equally emotion-filled and complicated as they are for women today. Now, Mary Ann fled to New Zealand with her children in tow. She left her husband on account of cruelty, and any woman today would probably do the same. We'll come back to Kate in a bit and return to another Kate, Kate Hunter. Having children, of course, complicated things in that the law was very clear that even into the 20th century, that if a woman left the home, she left her children. There were no rights of custody for women these are precisely the things that middle-class feminists are railing against. They're saying, we pay taxes, we are not protected by the law. Divorce was extremely difficult for a woman to pursue unless she could demonstrate extreme cruelty or desertion, which was several years of absence. And left in the meantime to struggle, most likely destitute, with a household full of children. These are exactly the things that middle-class reformers were pushing for the vote for because they felt that not only women's participation in the political process would have an influence on the kinds of legislation, but if, if they could get women into Parliament, the kinds of legislation that had direct bearing on women and children would be improved. Professor Barbara Brooks says it was difficult to afford a divorce back then. So the best thing to do was to leave, but a woman couldn't support herself, although there was provisions for maintenance. We do have evidence for, 
you know, high rates of bigamy, for example, because it was easier just to remarry than to get a divorce. I mean, how much would it have cost to get a divorce back then? Well, generally you had to get a lawyer and, and that was expensive. Divorce petitions up until a certain point had to be heard in Wellington, so you had to get yourself to Wellington. There was a social stigma against it, but there was also a financial barrier against it. Because of that, um, some of the suffragists were very involved in founding the Society for the Protection of Women and Children. Here we have Emily Cedarberg, the first doctor, Ethel Benjamin, the first lawyer involved in that society to take cases of cruelty against men who have been abusing their wives uh, and children. It's amazing when you read some of the cases of the, of the level of violence that was thought to be acceptable in the home. I mean, part of that too is that women and probably the children too were seen as the, the rightful property of the husband, right? Yeah. And that carried on right through to, you know, the woman must submit herself to the sexual desires of her husband. That was legal. That was... Yeah, until 1985. Which is just insane. I just can't get my head around that. So for women, that's a very difficult and vulnerable situation to be in if you are somebody's property. Yeah. I mean, do you think that women accepted that then therefore violence and, you know, being subjected to rape by her husband was a given? Well, there was no concept of marital rape. Sexual submission was part of the marriage contract. Marital rape didn't make sense as a concept. The suffragists wanted control over alcohol, if not prohibition, and certainly the Women's Franchise League was founded to separate the cause of suffrage from prohibition. If he got drunk and caused a ruckus, it was printed in the local paper, where accounts of drunk and disorderly behaviour are numerous. Here are some reports from the time. John Leonard, charged with drunkenness, drunk and disorderly. John Armstrong, drunk and disorderly, in Raven Street on the previous... Waitamata Hotel was fined 20 shillings and costs... And in a temperance column... The susceptibility of the lungs of those who indulge in alcohol explains the high death rate from consumption that exists in places where it is freely taken. Alcohol was a real force that drove families apart. But even applying for rights to divorce was layered with complication. You know, at the time of a woman gaining the vote, a man could divorce his wife for simple adultery, but a woman could only divorce her husband if his adultery was compounded by cruelty, incest, bigamy, sodomy or some other crime. I headed to suburban Auckland to meet Natalie Watkin. Now two of her forebears signed the petition the year before the successful 1893 one was passed through Parliament. One of those women was Philippa Jane Terrell, who also took a court case that showed women were willing to fight for their rights. Great-grandmother. Wow. Does she look like she doesn't have much hair? And, well, she looks as if it's pulled back really, really tight. And this is her daughter, you see. So they were the two women who signed the petition. This is the petition, and this is their names. And where is her name down that page? Number 11 and 12. And that was in Napier in 1892. Oh, that's right, because she signed the earlier one, didn't she? And it was a good thing she had, because she actually died in January 1893, so she would have not been able to sign it then. 
and Philippa was one of those 500 signatories who couldn't write her own name. Philippa would have been about 40 and her daughter Elizabeth about 20. She had signed the petition with an X, or that her daughter had signed for her, but I really don't know if that's true or not. Right, because that would have meant that she was literate, right? She may well have been. I mean, yes. I can't imagine like running a business, essentially, without being able to read or write. Well, there were two of them, and her daughter Elizabeth certainly right. would have been literate. Philippa had 12 children between the age, her ages of 20 and 40 and three of them died in infancy. But we don't seem to know where all of those children were. The story, family story is that she went to Napier with her daughter Elizabeth and they kept a boarding house. That was how they made their living. And that's because John Terrell, Philippa's husband, packed his bags one day and never came home. Such abandonment could be crippling, but in 1880, the Married Women's Property Protection Act changed all that, at least to some extent. Now, under this new law, a woman deserted by her husband without reasonable cause, subjected to cruelty, or whose husband was living in open adultery or habitual drunkenness, could get a court order saying she got to keep her money and property. So armed with these new one rights, Philippa Terrell did something that would have been unthinkable to her mother's generation. She took her husband to court and was one of the first women to do so. Really, divorce was only for wealthy people. He had deserted her and so she was still legally his wife. He could then come to her for any money that she might have. Did he actually turn up? No, no, no. He obviously didn't need to. They didn't know where he was, but the order was put in place that he would not be able to demand any monies or property from her. That court order survives on the New Zealand Encyclopedia website Te Ara and says that because she's maintaining herself, get this, by her own lawful industry, all her earnings and property would still be hers if John was ever to come knocking again. So obvious, yet so radical. So how was he financially? Was he? We don't know. We don't know. We only know that she didn't even know where he was. The last she knew he was living in Ashburton, but she was in Napier. The couple had married in Cornwall and made their way on a big adventure. John was 18 and Philippa was two years older. On the ship's records, he lied that he was 21. No one seems to know why. Uh, maybe like now he felt more comfortable being the older one, which is why he put his age up, or maybe he needed to be what they called of age back in those days, I don't know. But they had an assisted passage out to New Zealand and he was labelled as a farm labourer and I think they brought them out to work on farms. They needed that, so they got a cheap passage. John, his wife Philippa, John's mother. And there was something else that happened too. and a baby son, who was born on the journey out. The interesting thing is that they were married only a few months before they came to New Zealand, which means Philippa was pregnant before they got married. Within two years or about that time, he was able, I guess, to get out of the farm work and they moved to Australia and lived in three different gold mining towns had children at each of those places. And then they came to, back to New Zealand? And then they came back to Christchurch. But the thing about John, 
Well, he had other things on his mind. Apparently he was a good musician, and he eventually left Philippa and the family to pursue his dreams. And that was really important to him. And there's a photo of the baton he was given when he left Clunes, and I guess it, maybe it all just got too hard. And I think it was an awful thing to do for his wife and made life very difficult for her. Though you can imagine that she and Elizabeth would be really concerned about women's rights and, and very keen to be part of anything that was going to make life better for women. Kiwi women in the late 19th century had it tough. They were pushing for change because they didn't have control over so many different aspects of their lives. Working conditions also favoured men. Kate Hunter. I think what is a bit less visible is socialist radicalism. And I think there's, there's a lot of working class women who were agitating for more political power and it was partly because in many cases in Australia and New Zealand, women were locked out of the trade unions. And so working class women were saying, well, stuff them, we're gonna, we, we'll go for the vote instead. That was really their only avenue to improve their own conditions. Fair enough, I say. There are so many things we can easily take for granted today, but if it wasn't for those suffragists... Mrs Muller was the first woman in New Zealand to advocate votes for women. Really? Now I'll show you something. Now don't get up. She wrote a pamphlet. Why, I've got it over here somewhere. And women like Mrs Mueller were in a position to advocate for rights that uneducated, working, poor women couldn't always do. So because she was well educated and she'd obviously come from a family where there was money and she'd lost all those rights to money, her plea to men about giving women the vote was on the grounds that all men got the vote. It didn't matter what their status or what their education was and therefore all women should get the vote as well because they had the same brain capacity. Mm. This is 1869, that's 20 years later, so the children have grown up. Her stepdaughter married the son of Charles Elliot, the editor of the Nelson Examiner. And this is where Mrs Mueller kind of comes into her own as an activist. She wrote under the name Femina because even though Dr Mueller and her were really happily married, he didn't support women getting the vote and she didn't want to upset him so she chose to write under the pen name Femina and do all this secret lobbying. Why do you think her, her husband didn't support the women's suffrage movement? I don't know. Mm. They don't really talk about that. A lot of men couldn't, I guess, change the way they'd been brought up. And that served as a major threat to the lifestyle men were accustomed to. They said, the things they said you would have thought that women were going to the devil. <laughs> yes, yes, I can imagine there was a lot of prejudice to be overcome before women could get the vote. Oh, well, of course, there's always prejudice to be overcome before you can get any social betterment. Yeah, so she would contact lots of male politicians in New Zealand. There was a uh, male politician in the UK who was in contact with her and wrote to her with politicians such as E.W. Stratford, Sir David Munro, Alfred Domit and Sir W. Fox, whom she met in Nelson, that some of her ideas were incorporated into the Married Woman's Property Act and Charles Elliott, editor of the Nelson Examiner and Mary's Confident, was also in Parliament 
and his son was married to Mrs Mueller's stepdaughter. So he was therefore able to use his influence to support um, her work. They imagined that women, the middle class women, who are the bulk of the women in the Women's Christian Temperate Union, for example, imagined that they would transform male behaviour. And the man's dinner, entirely neglected. Picture, just picture, the scene of social and domestic discomfort, which would follow that. <laughs> it's laughable, isn't it? You know, part of the pleasure of being a historian is trying to get your head into why people thought differently to the way we do now. And if all your experience has been to have a mother at home, uh, to have sisters who learn to sew and sing and speak French, then you imagine that that's the way the world is organised. And it's really the power of ideas that changes that. You know, it's John Stuart Mill a British philosopher and economist known as one of the most influential thinkers in the history of liberalism. Who in 1869 wrote on the subjection of women and said women should have equality in all these things and people thought, oh. And many of the parliamentarians in the New Zealand Parliament were influenced by Mill's writing and it's the upper house, the conservative landed men who keep opposing suffrage. I mean, it's a new way of thinking about the world. Fancy a man coming home in the evening after a hard day's work, tired, weary with the worries of the day, and finding his parlour filled with a, with a lot of noisy, declamatory women. Back to Kate Hunter on the working conditions of women, and this is where we still have issues with pay parity today. That was why the male trade unions wouldn't have them, because... Male trade unions, they saw their key aim was to raise men's conditions and wages to the point where their women folk did not have to work. Which kind of sounds okay for the time, especially because work conditions for women were so tough. And because women were paid less, they were a direct threat to the male workforce because they were cheap. Women have been exploited since they first entered the workforce. And because of what's happened in the past, women are still experiencing inequalities today. That gender differential in pay actually posed a massive threat to the male breadwinner ideal. Which doesn't make any sense today because men and women have careers or work as well as trying to raise a family. So instead of arguing for equal pay for women, the male trade unions just basically were arguing women shouldn't be in the workforce at all. And the only reason they are in the workforce is because men don't get paid enough to keep their wives and children in comfort. You know, I think about the women in Petoni. So in the early 20th century, Petoni was a meatworks and right next door was the soap factory because you used animal fat in the soap. The railway sheds were out there, like it was an industrial suburb. The whole suburb was run by the sirens from the factory. That's how people knew when to get up in the morning. It's how they knew when to leave for work. It was a completely different world back then. Maybe not as bad as what you'd imagine industrial England would be, but still. You know, we think of Petoni as kind of groovy and funky now, but actually it was squalid. The houses were tiny, they were freezing, Everyone worked, no matter how many children you had, no matter, I could really see, it wasn't kind of a Charles Dickens slum, but it was a hard life. And if you had a chance 
for your son to become a teacher or a bank clerk or something just out and for him then to be able to earn enough that his wife wouldn't have to work the way your wife had, I can really see how for parents that middle-class aspiration was perfectly reasonable. There wasn't very much that was comfortable in those lives. You know, I've never really thought that there was such a thing as a New Zealand dream, but maybe it's that simple. There was also another area where women and children were vulnerable. Here's Barbara Brooks again. And one of the things they focused on to reduce women's sexual vulnerability was raising the age of consent. Some of them argued it should be 18 for women and others argued it should be 21. Then the burden of proof would go on the man. They would have to prove that the woman was consenting. Um, And so they did succeed in having it raised from 12 to 15 and finally 16. 12, age of consent was 12 Mm. before. Mm. Yeah, unfathomable, Mm. really, isn't it? If the age of consent is 12, that mean, does that mean that 12-year-old girls were kind of being set up in arranged marriages? Or well, you could or? still be married, even though the age of consent was raised, I think you could still be married at 12 and into war years, I'm not quite sure of the date. So considering that then, I guess, going back to the age of consent is, for a period, 12 years old, you would then assume that there were also 12-year-old girls working in the sex industry in New Zealand at the time as well? Possibly, Yeah when you're down on your luck. So if you've left an abusive man who you might be married to, you can't remarry, what work can you get? Maybe the work you can get is in the sex industry and your 12-year-old daughter might assist you with that. Mm, It's very disturbing. Being in the industry back then is a last resort, so women aren't voluntarily kind of going, I can make some pretty good money. We, we really don't know about motivation, but and, and sometimes they didn't make good money, and mainly by stealing money, so getting the men drunk, sleeping with them, and then cleaning out their wallets. And we know that by a study from one of our students of the cases that come to court in Dunedin in the 1880s. Right. Yeah. I would say good on them, <laughs> would you? I mean, I don't want to exaggerate the extent to which the Act was enforced. Mm. So I think it was only enforced a short time in Christchurch and in Auckland, but it wasn't enforced down here. Why do you think that is? Is it because he was...? Uh, it's because of the, where the military encampments were, I think. Women didn't have any rights to their own bodies. You're listening to RNZ Podcast Beyond Kate, and we'll dig a little deeper into the issue of gender and the body in the next episode. Back to Kate Hunter. Prostitution was a very common part of what we would call the destitute working class, and it was just used when and as it was needed. So you might be taking in washing, and you might have a boarder or a lodger, and you might occasionally sell sex. So, you know, it was one of a range of strategies. Send your children out to work, send your children out to steal. Do you think that was happening in New Zealand? Yeah, I do. There's no welfare state You could turn up at the local benevolent association with your children in tow, but then your moral, you know, your whole moral character comes under the micro, came under the microscope then. Um, And that's really challenging for women back then mm. in small communities, isn't it? Oh, yes. (laughs) The working poor were exploiting a range of 
activities in order to bring in any money they could. I was doing some work on dressmakers in New Zealand in the late 19th century and and they keep being pulled up into court under charges of running a disorderly house. Run that by me again? Charges of running a disorderly house. Yeah. You see, it was convenient. People coming, people going... But also, imagine if you were a single woman down on your luck with a household full of children to raise. Because dressmakers often work from home. They often have three or four young female apprentices who work with them. And of course, people are coming and going all the time. But there clearly was a bit of a crossover between dressmaking and prostitution (laughs) because these women were being charged and some of them it was being proved. How many men can a dressmaker have visit their house? But then there were others who strenuously defended their premises and said, we are, you know, we are dressmakers, we have a respectable client list. But this is going on in the newspapers and the court reports all the time. Speaking of sex work... The Contagious Diseases Act was introduced in Britain and New Zealand followed suit to control rates of venereal disease amongst the military. and operational in... uh, Christchurch and and maybe in Auckland for a very short time, you know, it represented the double standard because it made it possible for women who were thought to be common prostitutes to be arrested and compulsorily examined for venereal disease, whereas there was no provisions to examine men. In Britain, it was described as instrumental rape because a speculum would be introduced for the examination. That was really symbolic to the suffragists here of the double standard in sexual behaviour. And again, we'll revisit some of these double standards around women and the body in a later episode. You know, rates of syphilis were quite high around 1900. Um, I think something like 16% of the men in in the Seacliff Asylum had syphilis. And that had terrible implications for women who, you know, would miscarry, their nose might drop off, you know. Really? Yeah. So there's no treatment at the time? Uh, The treatment was mercury. Which had awful side effects, mood swervousness, irritability, other emotional changes like insomnia, headache, abnormal sensations, muscle twitching, tremors, muscle atrophy. Now, if I had to choose between my nose falling off and, hmm, not a great choice really, is it? The conditions were horrendous and they were shut off from basic human rights. Would there have been any homelessness? Yes, yes, and the single men's homes that run. Yeah, homelessness, I think, is was pretty common, but I think it looked a bit different. It's hard to draw the line between who were the itinerants, so men especially, working... Um, travelling and working, so, you know, men on the road who might have done a bit of farm work here and there or turned up to do odd jobs but just kept moving. So they would have been people with no fixed address. And homelessness in the way that we think of it as people who are too poor or too, um, you know, something's gone very wrong in their lives and, and they're unable to get a home. It's hard historically to see where those boundaries are because there's this real mix of people. I mean, would you would you say that once women did get the vote, I mean, you know, it's like you have an idea about what something's going to be, whether or not it's, you know, you're getting married and on paper you're, the idea in your head is this wonderful, romantic ideal, but when it actually happens, you realise that some things either take 
15, 20 years to manifest or, you know, it's not like an overnight thing, is it, that you start to see change happening? Hmm. Or no, it's it? like the shampoo ad, isn't it? You know, yeah. equality isn't going to happen overnight. <laughs> and it'll happen. But, and, and I don't think any of the pro-women's vote campaigners felt that they'd wake up on November the 29th, having voted the first time, and the world would be radically different by that act alone. But they did have, by that fact, something they could do. They could vote. They had never been able to vote before. Mm. They had a say in politics. You know, conditions were very different for women in those Victorian days. They always had to have a male escort when they went out. And the idea of asking them to enter a polling booth on election day when things were rather lively. But as we know, the rowdiness at the polling booths were nothing compared to the hardships that women faced every day, by virtue of, well, not being considered human. If we think about the women who wanted suffrage, they were just like you and me. Their lives were colourful, they were brave, romantic, adventurous, and many of them were everyday women who worked hard, and many went unrecognised. But all they wanted was to be treated fairly, just like we do now. So what does it mean for someone like Kate Fulton, who ended up in politics knowing that her forebear pushed for rights well before the suffrage movement gained momentum? I guess I'd been really reflecting on my role as a politician and the work I do on council and how, you know, like I'd learned about climate change in the 90s. All these things which are starting to happen now 30 years later and I had this sort of moment, oh, she was advocating for this 30 years ago and 30 years ago I was advocating for so many climate change and social justice issues. I guess the rest of the world's caught up and that's great, but it's good to feel like you're validated that your thinking wasn't as crazy as you were made out. (laughs) And that our voices are heard. And being heard continues to be a battle for women today. I'm an author. I'm a feminist going back quite a few decades now. This is Sandra Coney. I was one of the founders of Broadsheet magazine, which was a fairly influential feminist magazine in the 1970s and 80s. Also with Phyllis de Bunkle wrote the article for Metro, which led to the Cartwright Inquiry. And I'm currently a local body politician. I'm a member of a local board in Auckland and I'm also on the Waitamata District Health Board. There were a lot of kind of very basic precepts of the women's movement that were very attractive to me in the early days and one of them was that you measured the progress of women not by the women who are at the top, the high flyers, but by the women at the bottom. And so these are the women that could be unemployed, underemployed, um, on very low wages, homeless and the women, single mothers, bringing up children. Although we tend to focus on, for instance, with the Me Too, tends to focus on professional women, educated women, women who are doing quite well, it's important not to forget the women who are you know, doing two jobs because their wages are so low, which is why I you know, am right behind the living wage movement because at least that would lift women up 
because women are disproportionately in the group who are not earning a living wage. In the instance of the feminist movement, and even if we look at suffragists, I mean, largely that was driven by white middle class, educated women, and this whole idea of women who are working poor or, you know, in poverty, the situation hasn't changed for them at all. One of the things that is seen as making the suffrage campaign successful was the involvement of working women, particularly women who were in the unions, like the um, Taylorese's Union, where Harriet Morrison was such a force. And they really did turn out the working women, and some people would credit that support of the working women signing the petition with getting the numbers to get it through. By the virtue of the fact that middle-class women often do have more resources and more, sometimes more time to actually take up some of these fights and um, win them, but that will benefit all women. We shouldn't overlook the quiet heroines and the, the working women who actually have stood their ground in various aspects. And the reality is in New Zealand, children living below the poverty line is around about 27%. MP Kitty Allen, who you also heard in the last episode. Well, 10%, there's two uh, figures, but 27% below the poverty line. I just wonder if those women actually become a little bit invisible. Are they the first to just drop fast and hard off the radar because they're so vulnerable that we don't want to think about them, that we don't want to think that they're vulnerable to sexual violence on the streets or whatever, you know? Women solo woman who are parents that might have no home or no job or no family or nowhere to go. The numbers have risen dramatically over the past nine or so years and it's heartbreaking. So systemically, how do we ebb the curve? Well, you know, you take it back to Norm Kirk's vision, you know, you need somewhere to live, somewhere to uh, work, someone to love and something to hope for. But we've got an immense housing shortage right now women and children living on the streets and we've got NGOs that have been underfunded for the past 10 years because their work wasn't seen as vital and critical to the enhancement of humanity. It's been a devastating insight past few months in terms of seeing just how badly run down, in my view, so many things were. But the real victims of the the failure to invest in the basic things like housing and schools and jobs, I mean, it's kids, vulnerable women and children. Yes, a lot needs to change for women and children today. Back to Sandra Coney. Sandra felt a kinship with the suffragists. In her time as an activist, she was out protesting for women's rights. Yes, that sort of differentiated, I think, the second wave of feminists. When you think about what the suffragists in the 19th century, it was very much organised, it was a petition which was quite a private way of making your statement and making your voice heard. You would sign the piece of paper. Your husband didn't even need to know that you'd done it. When it came to the second wave, all bets were off as to what the tactics would be. And the women's movement in New Zealand was very influenced by what they read about and heard of by the American movement, which was very flamboyant. But things like picketing... uh, Always very sort of trying to attract media attention during the protest. These were the kind of things that the suffragists really didn't do and women hadn't particularly done before. 
What does the new feminist movement look like? And are we actually in the middle of it right now? I'm not sure what it looks like. I mean, there's, I don't think we should overlook the traditional women's movement because between suffrage and now, they've very often been the groups that have kept women's issues on the agenda, like YWCA or National Council of Women or the big peace movements for women. But part of the problem with the movement happening now, according to Sandra, is that the ball is so easily dropped, along with the momentum. So how can we ensure that issues for women are addressed? What the danger with some of the social media is things come and go, sort of no longevity to them. So actually having an articulated platform that people could support on the issues that they wanted to, even if the form of the organising or the groups or the individuals is, you know, a modern phenomenon. Why did you think about that before she decided? You can't say that, though. You're talking about someone who's already pregnant. Looking at the issues that we still face today, it seems we really have a long way to go before anything major changes. But it's important that we celebrate any victories that we have, big or small. You've been listening to Beyond Kate. Special thanks to to Papa, Natonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at Hitohu, the National Library of New Zealand. Thanks also to Duncan Smith, Ian Bull, Jude Walcott and Zoe George. The studio engineer for this episode was William Saunders. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. Next week on Beyond Kate, we get down to the nitty-gritty with the light and shade around why women have been held back because of their bodies. If you'd like to subscribe or listen again, head to the RNZ website or app, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.